Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I guess I don't have this in the right view. So, uh, presenter view. Ah, there we go. So we're, we're looking this morning at the center of um, theology, which is the nature of God himself. When I came into the, the nomination that we are a part of for our first 18 years, 17 years as a church, um, I had to be approved for ordination by them because I didn't come from what's called a NAPARC congregation or denomination where I had been ordained. I came up from an Anabaptist kind of nomination. And, uh, and so they, they said to me I wouldn't need to be examined, that it would just be a, a, some questions from the floor of Presbytery about views, which is different than content, if you understand the, the distinction. Views is what you think about things. What do you think about tongues? Content, they say. It's like testing you to know, see if you know. Okay, so a views exam is very much easier than a content exam. And I, I was coming in as a 40-some-year-old with, you know, with a church that was already established. And they said, it's a views exam. And then I got there, and on the day of it, they said, oh, no, it's a content exam. Well, the, the nomination I'd been in didn't examine you at all for ordination. <laughs> yeah, I'd gone to seminary, but I'd never spent months studying for an ordination exam. <laughs> So the morning they said, ah, oh, David, it's got to be a, a content exam, you know. And so I stand up there and they, they ask me, um, okay, describe the Trinity. So I'm a little nervous, even though I'm, you know, 40, I'm, I'm going, oh, you know. And I, I'm in front of the people and I say, well, the Trinity is God in three essences in one person. <laughs> and they all looked at me. <laughs> It's like, we caught a live one. Here it is. We've done this for years, and finally, it it proves valuable because we caught a heretic in full flower. (laughs) And I saw all these shocked faces out there, and I went, what did I say? They said, you said three essences, one person. I looked at them. I said, oh, you know what? I meant three persons in one essence. And they all went, (laughs) So that wasn't the only problem in that meeting, but (laughs) when they came to Tulip, I I don't remember which one, but one of them I couldn't remember, you know, and and so it probably probably affected their view of me for the next 18 years. So... This morning, we're, we're thinking about God, and it's helpful to remember that Jesus, okay, has two essences and one person, but the Trinity has one essence and three persons, and it's very easy to kind of flip those in your mind. Jesus is one person, but two essences, divine and human. 
And the Trinity has three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one substance or essence, whatever form of term you want to use. And so this morning, we're thinking about the Trinity, and I'm again using Bob's excellent notes. And I wanted to tell you that last week, those of you who were here and heard me talk about the silliness of, uh, of spelling God, G-D, and someone said, well, you know, Bob Forney did that. <laughs> Lisa Twining should have spoken up, which she did afterwards. So Lisa, tell the people what you told me afterwards, all right? My you, And they do it that way. So, so it wasn't something that he made a habit of, but to accommodate, all right? So I, I just want you to know that. <laughs> um, this morning, Bob has these, it's really a, a, a great set of notes on, on the Trinity. And I'm going to walk through them. I'll probably deviate from them at points. Um, using another man's examples is always a hard thing, you know, and he has an example in here, but I'll, I'll do it because I went through this with him. Um, uh, oh, here we go. So, a key verse for thinking about the Bible, one I just read yesterday in my own private Bible reading is Deuteronomy 29, 29. And you know that verse? This is a verse that... Um, that comes at the end of Deuteronomy. And Moses has spoken and given the law. He's sort of, it's what you'd call, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' valedictory. It's his closing address to his people. You know, he's run the race, he's won, but he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And so he delivers a sermon, a long sermon, uh, and a rephrasing of the law to the people before he dies. And that's the book of Deuteronomy, what we know as the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, you come through all the commands and all the promises, but in, verse, in chapter 28, you come to the curses and the blessings. It begins with the blessings, and there are maybe 10, 12 verses. And then you go to the, the curses, and the curses are, what, like 40 verses. And they're awful. And so you come out of that to Deuteronomy 29, and you, you have Moses saying, you're going to turn away from God. You're going to turn away. You're going to disobey him. I know you. You know you. You're going to do it. And so the question is, why has God, why has God called this people? Why has he led them out if it's going to end in failure? You know? And... Uh, and the conclusion that people will come to, the erroneous conclusion to that question is what? What erroneous solution to that problem of God having established all this system, done all these things, and then the people go and leave them? The erroneous conclusion will be what? What do people say? How do people explain 
God having done all these things, and then the people going away. And his punishment descending. Gabe? Okay, how do people explain in a way that's wrong God having done all these things and then the people not following him? That's, that could be one. They didn't understand it. Or what would they say about God? Well, that's, they'll attack his character. They'll say he can't be trusted, or more importantly, what? He's too demanding. That could be, yeah. But what they say is that he's not in control. He's not sovereign. Okay, so people are sovereign, and God's foiled, right? You know, and, and that's the erroneous conclusion. You know, look, you've done all this, God. You've set up all this law, and then you have to go and punish the people, and it's just because you don't, you know, somehow they have power, that's, that trumps your wishes. And so, in, in Deuteronomy 29, well, let's turn there and look at it, okay? If you have your Bibles. Okay. So, all this land, you look back at verse 22. That, now the generation to come, your sons will, who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, they will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. And all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring against it uh, to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. And then you get this verse. Secret things belong to the Lord, right? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. And it's just a a fundamentally important statement at the end of this, this book, at the end of this prophecy of destruction, that, look, God is working his will. And you need to trust him. And he's told you how to live. And you accept it. And you live that way. And you don't try and figure out why God does what he does. There are certain things that are beyond you. Luther called this, he said, you can't lift the skirts of God. You can't inquire in the concealed things of God. It's not given to you. 
And that's what this verse says. Rather than try and figure it out, all you need to do and know is that God has called you to obey him and he'll care for you. You know? And that's a, a, an important verse for a time like this in our nation when we see things going crazy and haywire on, on many levels, especially morally. Sin, and you go, whoa, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? And God says, look, the secret things are mine. But what I've revealed is for you and your children that you may follow me and that your children may be safe forever. The things that are revealed. And so there are things as we come to the Godhead, as we come to the Trinity, that are going to be beyond us. We can't explain them. We don't try to. The more we try to explain them, the more analogies you use for the Trinity, the more you demean the Trinity. So people like to use analogies for the Trinity. Um, have you heard analogies of the Trinity before? Can you think of one? An egg, An egg with what? Right. But of course, that's one egg, but it's various parts that are composite, right? It, it's actually a yolk, which is of a different nature and character from the white, which is of a different character and nature from the shell. God is not composite. The Trinity is not three things molded together into one. Okay, so it's a terrible analogy in the end. It may help with five-year-olds, but I remember my dad saying, no, we don't talk that way when I came home and told him something I'd heard in Sunday school that made sense, you know? I think the one I heard was a different one. Which ones have you heard? Yes. Yes, water in ice, uh, in water, and in steam. Okay, another one. You've, have you heard any others? Those are the two that come to my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. A three-leaf clover, okay. Actually, uh, Augustine, in his book on the Trinity, does work with, uh, aha, Jacob. What does he say is the best analogy for the Trinity? Come on. We just went through it. Okay, it's the mind, the memory, and the will, right? And he says, and he, he tries to think, he, he discards any of these notions of the Trinity that are material, water. But he does spend time thinking about how these things work together, and he identifies the Trinity with the mind, the memory, and the will. And that's maybe, now, even that, that illustration is very hard. That, that analogy is very hard because he's actually trying to be closer to the Trinity in it than water, ice, steam, or an egg, you know? And so even the, the analogy is a, is a difficult one. So I want to talk about the Trinity. Um, God has hidden certain things. He hides himself. He doesn't reveal everything. There are mysteries in, in our religion that are, that are not going to be... Well, what great verse speaks about the mysteries that, will, that we live in the midst of? Or can you think of more than one verse? What verse speaks about the fact that we live around mysteries that will one day be revealed, maybe? You know, that will one day be revealed. Can you think of any? There's verses everywhere. What's that? 
There is one. Now we see as through a glass darkly. But, you know, uh, then we will see fully, even as we are fully known. Now we know in part, that, you know. And the Bible is constantly telling us we don't see everything, but we have enough to live for God. The Bible says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. But God also reveals himself, and so it is not wrong to inquire, but it is wrong to go too far in our inquiries and to be too certain as we come to things. And that was uh, these things that we don't inquire into and the things that we must inquire into was the excitement of the first four or five centuries of the church because people fought over the Trinity. People fought over the nature of Christ. The church was divided over and over again. And if we believe that God works in history to bring about his outcome, then I think we have to say that what we have received from the church in those days is the will of God. Do you understand what I'm saying, how God works in history? God is shaping history. It's like a river that he, he sends where he wants it to go. And so the outcome that comes is always the one God wants. And so I look back on the disputes over the Trinity and I say, yeah, the right side won because it won. <laughs> God is not going to let his son or his own character be demeaned and have that win. And it's just a view of, I think it's a necessary view of history for Christians. That in the end, God's will is, is triumphant. And that's, I think that's a, a problem in, in American Christianity today. I think many people feel that maybe God's will really doesn't happen. And they, they ask this question, why are these things happening? They say, well, God, I don't know, he can't, he's stepped back, he's not in charge, he's this or that. And it comes about in a lot of different ways. The ideas that I grew up around, and some of you probably did, of the rapture, and God coming after everything goes bad and bad and bad, and he takes his people out, I think is a view that says God loses, but in the end he pulls everyone out and he rescues them. And it's just not the, it's not the view of, of the Bible of history. God is winning along the way. So we are, um, we're accused as Christians, the historic classic Christianity is accused of being irrational, contradictory, and believing in the Trinity. And yet, Historic Christianity, the Christianity that you and I have inherited, are the heirs of, has consistently for 1,600 years taught one thing about the Trinity. All right? So much so that you know the Unitarian churches in America? Have you heard of the Unitarian churches? They deny the Trinity. They came out of the 1700s and deism. And uh, some of the opponents of Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening became the first of the deists and the Unitarians. And the Unitarian denomination, that's not a denomination, the Unitarian religion began out of that. And uh, there's a Unitarian church, I think it's down on Glendale. There's one on the north side of Bowling Green. And they're descendants of those churches that uh, were pastored by congregational pastors in, in the Boston area in, originally in the 1700s who denied the Trinity. 
they were very logical. They said it's impossible for God to be three in one. They hated the emotional and spiritual, what they saw as enthusiasm and excesses of the Great Awakening. All right? They said, God doesn't work like that. God works through the mind, you know? And they, they were the bright boys of that group. And, uh, and they despised Edwards. They despised the crying. They despised the camp meetings. They despised all that stuff. They said, no, it's the mind. It's the intellect. It's this. And eventually they denied the Trinity. Well, you've heard of the National Council of Churches. Some of you have heard of the National Council of Churches. National Council of Churches is not really a Christian organization. It's a liberal organization. It's as dead as a doornail in terms of classic Christianity. It is as dead as can be. But the National Council of Churches will not permit the Unitarians to enter it. Why? Because they deny the Trinity. It is that basic that even the liberals say, if you deny the Trinity, you're not Christian. Okay? So it's, this is not something that we're teaching in our back corner here. This is Christianity across the board. This is orthodoxy. There may be a few distinctions between us and the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox. Okay, We and the Roman Catholics being here, them being just a little bit off in their views from us on minor points. All right, But by and large, the three great branches of Christianity differ not a bit. You, you may wonder how do the Orthodox differ from us? It goes way back and it's a question of how, did I, have I talked about this in here? It's a, a question about, we've talked about the, the Son being eternally begotten from the Father. And everyone agrees that. The Son is eternally generated by the Father. He's eternally the Son of God. Never created, always being, and always being Son, coming from the Father. The question is, does the Holy Spirit proceed, and that's the word we use for the Holy Spirit, he proceeds, which is the biblical term, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father through the Son or directly from the Father and Christ being generated by the Father? So, in a sense, the Western Church, the Catholics and the Protestants, say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Eastern Church says the Holy Spirit proceeds from... That's how relatively minor the differences between Eastern Orthodoxy and us are, and that's the biggest difference between them and us theologically. But it was enough to cause them by 1044 AD to go their way and to no longer be part of the Church. That's how important these issues are. All right, so Bob wants us to speak about contradiction. And uh, we don't believe there's any contradiction in the Godhead. And yet, how can three be one and one be three? How can they be of the same essence and yet separate persons? All right. Paradox means it, it just seems like it's difficult, but there's, it's a seeming problem. All right. And yet it's not. And then you have mystery. Well, which of these is the Trinity? It's not a contradiction because it's true. It's not a paradox because 
it's not seemingly something yet, yet, you know, if you think about it, clear. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's something that God has not revealed to us. He has not showed us all of it. <laughs> all right? So, this is Bob's illustration. All right? Uh, we have here Yorkshire, England, and in Yorkshire, there's York Minster. Any of you been to York Minster? One? Okay. It's, I've not been there, but I've seen pictures of it. Here's a plan for York Minster. Here's the center of it with naves on either side. And then you have, looking up, I guess, from the center. And then you have the front. And that sure looks like what? Mrs. French. I know. I keep thinking, does he have it wrong? Okay. Well, Bob's right. I mean, he's got to be right. But that window up there looks like Notre Dame, doesn't it? Okay. And uh, it's called the Rose Window of York, Mr. Is it there? Does it look like that? Okay. All right. This is what it looks like from the inside. Now, this is Bob's illustration because this is not mine. Okay, so he says, yeah, you know the DNA double helix. <laughs> so, you know, what is it? Stricken or strunken white? No, stricken. Watson and Strick came up with the crick. Thank you. Are you correcting me? No. Are you correcting me? <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Okay. DNA is filled with more than 3 billion bits of information. Here's DNA. Okay, now, the reveal. Ah, rose window, DNA double helix. I don't remember what the point of this was. <laughs> but, but it really was a nice parallel, isn't it? And mm, mm, I think it's fractals, you know? Every fractal looks alike. But anyway, so now we move on. And I don't remember what his point was. Can anyone help me? No, okay. So, God as three and one at the same time, it's difficult to understand, it's clear, it's... Okay, let me... Let me move beyond this, okay? Old Testament makes it clear that God is one. This is not tri-theism. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema, right? Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In a land, in a time that was filled with polytheism and every idol and every place worshiping in its own way, Israel was to remember that their God was one, and he had one place to be worshipped, and he wasn't to be worshipped on every hillside or every, you know, he said, when we get to the land, when you get to the land, worship me in my place. It's, it's oneness. It's one. And that's even reflected in the one temple, the one place of sacrifice, you know. And so people believe that, that Christianity teaches tritheism. Who classically and most importantly, the Muslims will, will accuse us of that. All right. There will be others as well. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will say some of these things as well. 
Jehovah's Witnesses are basically the Muslims, but they go by a different name. Uh, now, um, we find in the Bible Jesus being taught to be divine. Jesus accepting the worship that would only be proper to be given to deity, the divine. My Lord and my God, Thomas says to him. He accepted the worship. He forgave sins. Who can forgive sins? I mean, that's what they said. Who can forgive sins except God, Jesus said. Which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and pick up your mat and walk? Well, obviously, it's harder for a, a crippled man to get up, to be told to get up and walk, than for someone to say your sins are forgiven. But then he tells the man to pick up as a proof that he has the power to forgive sins. Right? It's a proof of his ability to forgive sins, that he makes the man walk. And the people are amazed. He claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath was God's day. If you're the Lord of the Sabbath, you are God, right? And so all through, but it's not just in, in the life of Christ, all through you have the Bible teaching that the Messiah is going to be God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John begins that way. Uh, this is why we're called Christ the Word. So we're going to, I'm, I'm moving us along here. <clears throat> all right. Trinitarian doctrine says God is one, God is three, all three fully God, each of the persons distinct from the others. The three are related to one another eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The last portion of the Trinity to be accepted as as, as doctrine, the, the truth of the Trinity, was the, the full deity of the Holy Spirit. Um, I probably have talked about this. I think I talked about it last summer. Do you, some of you remember my speaking about this? I don't remember. Yeah, some of you. you yeah. Remember, um, there was uh, this guy named... Um, Gregory of Nazianzus, a great theologian. He's called the theologian, Gregory the theologian. And uh, he lived about the same time as Augustine, but he was the preeminent thinker about the Trinity. He was a bishop in the area of Cappadocia, and, uh, and he pushed and pushed. And he was friends with two brothers, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil of Caesarea. And they were together known as the Cappadocian Fathers, and they were hugely important to the history of the church, and especially in the, the fourth century, in defining many things. They defined what they defined. Um, Basil was the leader of the monastic movement, as well as a great theologian on the Trinity. Uh, Gregory was sort of a mystic, his brother. And then Gregory of Nazianzus was a friend and a bishop, and he, he pushed and pushed 
for people to understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had to fight on both sides. People who would deny the, the deity of Christ, and they'd be known as the Arians. And on the opposite side, the, uh, uh, oh, come on, what's the name of the heresy? Uh, the people that he dealt with who would say that Jesus wasn't really man. Okay? And what he'd say is that what was not, uh, uh, what was not taken up in Christ of the human condition was not redeemed. And if he wasn't fully a man, then his redemption doesn't cover the parts he didn't have. And so he's famous for saying that what was not taken up was not redeemed. Um, and so he fought for that. But as he grew in prominence towards later days in life, he was made the bishop of, of not a little town in Cappadocia, but of, of Constantinople. A new emperor was was brought into the empire. He was made emperor because he'd won some, some significant battles. And he was, he was an opponent of the Arians. And uh, there'd been a lot of persecution and kill, uh, people being banished and exiled and even killed because of this debate over whether Christ was really fully God. And uh, this general was made emperor and he was a, a, a real Trinitarian. And he asked this Gregory to come and to be the, the bishop in the capital city, the most important at that point, you know, bishopric in the empire. And so Gregory came and he called a council to deal with the, the Trinity. It was intended to, to consolidate in the emperor's mind the belief that Jesus was fully God. That was why he wanted it, and that's why he brought Gregory there. But Gregory had felt that, that this anti-Arian uh, position that he had been advancing and Augustine had been advancing was winning. But he, he also was strongly concerned that people were willing to say that Jesus was fully God, but not willing to say that the Holy Spirit was fully God. And so he came to Cappadocia, and he immediately started taking to task those who taught or were unwilling to say that the Holy Spirit was the third person of the Godhead. And he began preaching and teaching, and then he called the council, and he pushed the council of Constantinople to embrace that position. And the people who opposed him were known as the Pneumatomachians. Okay? The Pneumatomachians, pneumo is spirit, and mako is fight. Okay? And they were, so they were the people who fought the Holy Spirit. And there are always people who fight the Holy Spirit. You know? They don't want the Holy Spirit to inhabit our lives. They don't want God to live within us. They don't want the kind of things that happen in the Great Awakening and all. They want it systematic, logical, orderly. And so they fight the Spirit. They're, they're working against the Holy Spirit. And he came and said, the Holy Spirit is God, and he lives within us. And uh, they say he kind of blew it politically in the council. And it, probably he did. Um, the council didn't listen to him on a couple points. He lost the battle for them to declare, as he wanted, the Holy Spirit to be fully divine. And that was the final piece of the tr battles over the Trinity. But I told you this, ironically, his position that he preached on and taught on for those two or three years, he was the 
in his 60s when he was the bishop in Constantinople. Not embraced at all by the council, not at all. They get an anodyne, sort of weak, wimpy statement about the spirit. And he was distressed about it. He went back to his small town, kind of retired, wrote poetry. But over the next hundred years, there was never a, <laughs> she's fine. There was never another council, but his position became slowly just embraced by everyone. So he never knew that he had won, but he was the one who fought and almost single-handedly said, because everyone else was focused on this battle about Jesus. And he said, no, the Holy Spirit is just as important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. Okay, so we're going to move on. Athanasius, of course, was the, the great initial warrior, theologian, bishop who taught on the Trinity. And before there was Augustine, before there were the Cappadocian fathers, the, this Gregory I'm speaking of, Athanasius was bishop in, in Alexandria, which was one of the great cities of the world back then and one of the chief the chief cities of the church, and he fought for the Trinity. He's thought to be the author of the Athanasian Creed, which distinguishes Nicene Christianity from Arianism. The Nicene Creed was done early in the 300s, and it was a Trinitarian creed, and, but Athanasius was there as a young man, and what happened at, at Nicaea was good, and we still say the creed, although it had some changes made to it, but um, it really didn't as strongly as needed to be done, as strongly as Athanasius felt was necessary. It didn't define the, the deity of Christ. And so the, 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 the original council of Nicaea in what was it, 312 AD, something like that, didn't really change things. It just became a, a flag in the sand, a sort of a marker of where things should be, but it didn't have real power or effect because people fought it and it was not as clear as it could have been. So the, the Athanasian Creed and Athanasius teaching is that the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are God. All right? This is the Athanasian Creed. It's attributed to him. We don't know for certain. Whoever desires to be saved should, above all, hold to the Catholic faith. What is Catholic? Universal. Universal. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Never blending their persons nor dividing their essence for the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son, another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit immeasurable. Father is eternal, the Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal, and yet there are not three eternal beings, but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated 
and immeasurable beings. Similarly, the Father is Almighty, the Son, the Holy Spirit, goes on. God is one, God is three, the three persons are fully God, each person distinct from the others and related to one another eternally. Father, Son, Holy Spirit proceeding. Father begetting the Son eternally. The Son and the Father having the Holy Spirit eternally proceed from them. And the Holy Spirit is taught throughout the Bible. It's not as clear in the Old Testament, just as Christ is not as fully revealed. But throughout the Old Testament, we find the Holy Spirit coming upon people. We, at, we see David asking that God not take his Holy Spirit from him when he sins. There is the person that he is called, a person, he's called him. He will, the, the, Jesus says the Holy Spirit moves where he wants, according to his will. The Holy Spirit is a person. And so it's, it's found throughout the Bible. All right. I'm moving quickly on because um, I don't know if this is helpful, but Bob has it in here. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That's the generic term, Elohim. And uh, what do we make of the gods? Well, my opinion is that they're the people who are worshipped as gods, but who are not. And it could be that those who are worshipped behind all the idols are what? What's that? Yes, the Bible says that the, the, the idols are behind all the idols are demons, right? So every idol is. And so I think that in certain ways, the, the evil spirits are viewed as gods because they do have power. And they do work against God and they do cause things in this physical universe. Now, this is getting to the, the philosophy of God. He's simple. No composition, not parts brought together, but simple. He is God. And you say, how can he be God and simple and yet be three? It is a mystery. There are no parts to God. He is three. And even in the Old Testament, it was clear. God says, let us make man in our image. The word for God is Elohim. And I am in Hebrew is like S in, in English. It's the way you turn a word from singular to plural. You know, cat or cats. Uh, Eloha or Elohim in God. And so God is always referred to as in the plural. Um, all right, we're going, to, we're going to leave this off. We're near the end of Bob's notes. Um, I just want to end by saying that for about 1,500 years, Trinitarian doctrine was established. No fighting over it. Even the National Council of Churches understood the Trinity in one way. But I, I do want you to know that in the pastor's college, we're teaching on the Trinity in a big way. Because it's my view, it's our view as leaders of this church that the Trinity is where the battle is today. And it's not 
where it was 1,500 years ago. The it's not with the Spirit. It's not the Pneumatomachians deprecating the Holy Spirit. It's not the Arians. I mean, they're out there, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. The battle in the church is for the fatherhood of God, which I've, I've said to you before that Augustine says no one would ever question the, the fatherhood of God, but that's where we are today. And so we are, we're seeking to raise up young guys who will be equipped to fight these battles and to know this theology and to be equipped because all across the Christian world, people are trying to claim the, the Trinity on their views. And usually it's the feminists who are saying, oh, you don't understand God. You know, there's no authority in the Father. It's all love. You know? And, uh, and so these are the, the areas, the great areas of debate today. And it's come back to a Trinitarian, but it's, the focus is not on the Spirit, it's not on the Son, it's on the fatherhood of God. And so these are important things to be thinking about, and you need to be aware of the, the battle that's, that's really being waged everywhere around you, everywhere. Because feminism is not about women, it's about the Father. It's an attack on the fatherhood of God. And, uh, and we have to see that. We have to understand that, that biblical Christianity is being attacked. It's not uh, just a, a simple view. You know, I was with a pastor this past week who wanted to challenge me in the area, wanted to tell me he was upset with our church in certain ways because of some things that have happened that affected his church, really sort of peripheral to us, but some of our people were involved in it. And so I, I tried to explain to this young man why. I said, look, um, we have different views of God. And it's not a light thing that separates us, you know, that has caused these, these differences. And he said, oh, yeah, I know the Bible. I know what it says in those areas. And I did a paper on it in seminary. I know all about it, and I just have a different view. And I thought, I, I like the man, and I'm, I'm going to get together with him again, I hope. But I thought, no, you don't understand at all. You, you just don't get that your view is not just a simple view of how men and women relate, that it's a view about God and his word and everything that's at the heart of things. So, so uh, Calvin, stand up and ask God to be with us as we go to church. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.